This episode is brought to you by Dunnings, your local distributor of quality fuels and lubricants throughout Western Australia. Dunnings Fuel operate their fleet of trucks 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Dunnings keeps the whole state running. Find out more at dunningsfuel.com.au. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Back in episodes 150, 151 and 156, we heard the stories of Debbie and Ashley Dowden from Chalice Station in the southern rangelands of WA. Now, two of those episodes were recorded with Debbie, and Ashley only recorded one. Or did he? For those of you who don't know, we actually have two podcast series, Central Station, the one you're listening to right now, and the other one is called Cattle Station Classroom. Within that podcast, I launched a mini-series called Station Sticky Beak, where I sit down with station owners and managers across the country to, well have a massive sticky beak into their station and business. And so today, I invite you to join me in having a sticky beak into Chalice Station. It was the second episode I recorded with Ashley. If you like what you hear and you want to have a sticky beak into other cattle stations, make sure you search Cattle Station Classroom wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can find it on our website, www.centralstation.net.au. Welcome back to another Station Sticky Beak episode. This series was created to share an insight into why pastoralists do what they do, given their circumstances, whether it be location, country type, rainfall zone, infrastructure, ownership model, market, or any of the other many factors influencing management decisions. In each Station Sticky Beak episode, I'll chat to station owners and managers about a range of topics broadly covering country, infrastructure, cattle, and people, to show that there are many ways to achieve positive outcomes for people, livestock, the land, and business. So, let's get into it. Ashley, what kind of enterprise are you running and what is your target market? We running, uh, are running a beef cattle enterprise, and uh, I guess... We, we sort of enter into two different markets, but certainly the um, the live export for bulls and steers, and uh, we sell into um, finishers and feedlotters that buy our cattle at um, 
put them also, fatten them and finish them uh, into put them into the domestic market. So we're um, probably predominantly live export for males and um, predominantly domestic market for females. Whereabouts is the station and how big is it? Uh, 206,000 hectares, which is just on half a million acres, and we sit halfway between Mount Magnet and Sandstone in the southern rangelands of Western Australia. And what's your annual average rainfall? Uh, 218 millimetres, so we're officially classified as desert. All right, so we'll jump into our first section, which is country. Can you describe to me the seasons that you get here, if you get defined seasons, that is? Our rainfall is not set uh, historically, this part of the world has had a predominantly winter pattern, so uh, we get rainfall from the tops of the fronts. Uh, quite often we used to get tropical feed had come in from the northwest and interact with a front going through, a low-pressure system and a front going through down south, and the, uh, the tropical air would interact with the top of the front and we would get significant, you know, um, May would be the start, and sort of mid-May and June, July and, and finished by August and opportunistic thunderstorms in summer and maybe a cyclone every three or four years you'd get the tail end of a cyclone would come through. But over the last 20 years, the uh, winter rainfall has certainly reduced. It's dropped off significantly to the extent that for probably the last 18 years, not including last winter, but 18 years prior to that, we had pretty much no winter rain, well and truly below half of what we would have expected. Although last winter we actually did have a good average winter last winter, which was the first one in 19 years. But, um, yeah, right now our rainfall pattern has changed to more of a summer-dominant pattern, so we're getting more thunderstorms. We're actually getting, on average, slightly more rain than we used to. But the actual usefulness of that rainfall event is lessened because if you get 10 mils in the middle of summer when it's mid-40 degree temperature, uh, it's it's evaporated and gone in two days and it never really gets a chance. You don't, you don't get germination or anything like that where if you had 10 mils in the middle of winter, the ground would stay damp for a week or more. And if you've had a start, that 10 mils actually becomes very, very useful rainfall where in summer... Even if you've had a start, the 10 mils doesn't do a lot because it's just two days later it's gone, it's steamed up out of the ground. So the actual usefulness of the rainfall, even though we're getting more, uh, is not as good under the current uh, weather pattern than what it used to be. So we're really reliant on, on a thunderstorm, which gives us 25 millimetres or more. Uh, 25 millimetre thunderstorm will give you a germination and then you just got to hope that you keep getting bits and pieces to, um, to to make that grass grow. So predominantly winter in the past and predominantly summer now. We don't have a green date. Uh, it's, it's, it's hit and miss. I mean, some years we get none. You know, rainfall-wise, we might have as, as, as little as 50 mils for a 12-month period. And then the following year, we'll get a tail end of a cyclone will come down and we'll get 150 mils over three days. So it's very hit and miss. Can you describe the country type and what sort of land systems are on Challa and Windermara? Predominantly, uh, we're in the mulga um, landscape with saltbush and bluebush. So um, mulga is the predominantly the, the timber. 
Um, Chulla and Windermarra, the two stations that we own, are a large amount of them is bluebush, saltbush country, so it's good grazing country for sheep and small stock, um, very productive uh, country for small stock. On the Chulla lease, we have about 30% of our lease is um, Merbler land system, which is open plains country with grass on it. So 30% of Chulla is, is cattle country and probably 35 to 40% of Windermurra is that same Merbler land system, which is cracking clay. It's very deep, very rich soil, open country, um, you know, it's got trees on it, but scatterings of trees, um, low shrubs and things on it as well, but predominantly grass country. So, you know, probably um, across the two places, you'd say 35% of the um, of the land is actually reasonably good cattle country if, if it rains. And, um, you know, the, the saltbush, bluebush country, they'll, they'll feed back into that um, once the grass is gone Um and once the saltbush bluebush is gone, well, if you, you you really need to be thinking about getting them off or getting them into different areas, but they will go in and browse the mulga, and that's the last resort once they start eating the leaves off the mulga trees. It does keep them alive for a period of time, but it's uh, certainly not ideal, and for weight gain and things like that, is yeah, you just wouldn't fatten cattle or put weight on them in the mulga country. You ran sheep here up until 2008 and then for the last 10 years you've been running cattle and there was a period of destocking in between for about six years. During, uh, not just, I don't want to ask you just about the cattle time, but all of your time here, what have your grazing and spelling strategies been? Uh, We've always run less than our um, recommended carrying capacity, so conservative stocking. In sheep days it was certainly... um, all fenced for, for sheep and, and well-maintained fencing. So we had a rotational strategy to some extent. I wouldn't call it rotational grazing, but we certainly shifted sheep um, throughout the year if some paddocks were starting to look a bit um, you know, overgrazed or, or uh, not enough food on offer. We shifted sheep out and the um, I, I guess the, the opportunity to spell paddocks after shearing we would probably have 20, on average, 25% of the place would be not stocked every year. So um, rotational grazing, not in its true form, but certainly spelling paddocks and leaving country um, destocked for 12 months at a time and and making sure that the country that did have the stock on it was certainly not being overgrazed. So running a reduced number of, of stock, livestock, in the sheep days and um, and changing paddocks and definitely spelling country. It's a bit different since we've gone into cattle because we haven't as yet been able to fence internally for cattle. The, uh, the boundary is almost, well, two-thirds done uh, and that's been our priority for the last six or seven years is um, getting water and infrastructure in that's um, relevant to cattle and re-fencing the boundary. So um, I think it's... It's over 200 and something kilometres of boundary fence and uh, and we've done about 150 or 60 at this stage and that's not including the um, the dog fence. We've got 80 kilometres of our boundary is um, the number one um, rabbit-proof fence which is now maintained for dog control. So we've got 80 kilometres of, of that fence which is maintained to a fairly high standard as well as boundary. 
But cattle-wise, numbers, we're still running them very conservatively, like we're running them at less than 50% of our recommended carrying capacity. Um, at, at present, um, probably about fifteen to 1,800 cattle all up, uh, and we should be running 3,500. Um, that's our recommended carrying capacity. So we're running at reduced numbers. With the internal management and spelling of areas and things like that, we do that through... I, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the term, but self-herding is, is one of the terms used where we will shift cattle around from landscape to landscape with attractants. Um, we use a lot of loose mix lick uh, and other things as well and you take all your, collect up all your lollies and, and all the attractants and you shift them to a different watering point and then shift your cattle uh, once and basically the cattle will water there, half them will go back to the windmill where they've been but when the attractants are no longer there and half their friends are no longer there they might stay a day, they might stay a couple of days and then they'll sort of go back to where you shifted them to so it's not always 100% self-herding they don't move themselves um, a certain percentage would when you shift the attractants but the way we do it is to shift the attractants, shift the cattle and then uh, if they go back, there's always a small percentage that return to the area, but it is a way of lightening off numbers. So you get 90% of your cattle to shift from one watering point to the next. And you just keep moving them around the property using those self-herding techniques, shifting the attractants, etc. I don't believe in shutting down waters because um, the native animals are impacted significantly, especially birds and things like that. If if you're not um, you're not using a water for cattle, don't shut it off, don't turn it off. Uh, that's the best way to kill the uh, animals and you know, kangaroos, emus, native birds and things like that that rely on your watering points. We've had them there for well over 100 years and the native animals have become reliant on those watering points and I don't think it's the right thing to do to shut waters off completely to stop your cattle from being in those areas. But we manage you know, the, the food on offer and, and the... Um, condition of the, the landscape by just shifting them around using self-herding techniques. So is your choice to run your stocking rate at less than 50% of the recommended carrying capacity, is that because you don't have the infrastructure, the internal fencing infrastructure to be able to have the level of control over grazing management that you want? Is that, is that just like a what you're going to do until, say, if you had internal fences, would you be running at the no, or closer I, to the current it's capacity? A, it's a conscious decision. It's not related to infrastructure. It's more about the country type. And now with the carbon project, um, you know, we've committed to cutting, you know, or, or areas of the property that are not really high productivity grazing land but are heavily timbered and... Um, and ideal for, for carbon sequestration. So in those areas, in, in some of those areas, uh, we've, we've actually fenced them off um, so that our cattle can't get in there. In, in other areas, we've just not put waters, we've not developed them, um, we've not put waters in there so that that doesn't encourage our stock to go in. And um, those areas are specifically set aside for sequesting carbon. So there's there's a percentage of our property that we don't want our cattle to go in. Then there's other areas which are also useful for sequesting carbon but are um, sort of moderate to low-value grazing 
um, areas that in a good season the cattle can go in and graze it when it's when there's you know um, reasonable feed on the ground and grass and herbage and that sort of stuff. And then as that dries off, they tend to come back out into the into the areas where they they've been living in the past and and the um, better grazing country. So we can actually push them into those areas and save our um, and take attractants and and actually make them go into those areas and graze there. And then as the you know the, the herbage and feed the grass that's on the ground dries off before they start browsing the actual shrubs and trees because the um, HIR carbon project that we are running is reliant on the regenerating native forests, which are trees that grow to more than two metres. So you don't want your cattle impacting on the regenerating native forest. So basically their preferential grazing is the grasses and then the small shrubs. Once that's starting to you know get low, you've got to get them out of there. So the fact that we're running a reduced percentage is because a lot of our country is not ideal for cattle, where sheep would do well in there, but cattle don't. So we've, we're running reduced numbers um, in conjunction with a carbon project, and and hopefully, you know, looking after the country as well. And and in the future, wouldn't wouldn't matter. Um, no, we're not planning on developing waters and developing infrastructure and utilising. We could do with. Um, uh, you know, a handful more waters to spread the grazing pressure a little bit more evenly in the in the better country. But really, um, in all honesty, we wouldn't be running any more cattle if we did that anyway. We'd just be spreading out the ones that we've got. That's actually a really good point. You're the first station that's been on Station Sticky Beak that's running a carbon project. And on my list here of questions and topics, I don't actually have carbon written down. So it's just been added to the list because... Yeah, without that uh, understanding that there's a carbon project going on and the other factors in there, yeah, I just made assumptions as to – I was trying to make assumptions as to why you had such a low stocking rate. What Do you undertake any rangeland monitoring uh, activities? We've been um, – had monitoring sites. We're one of the first people, certainly in the southern rangelands, one of the first, not the first, but certainly early on we established monitoring sites all over Challa and uh, since we've purchased Windermurra, we've got monitoring sites all over Windermurra as well. So we have in, in excess of um, 50 monitoring sites over the half a million acres. And what uh, does that involve? And how often do you do the monitoring? Previously, we would monitor, we would go to each site every year annually and um, and when we, when we were just monitoring on Chala, uh, certainly the, the plan was, although it didn't happen every year, but the plan was that you would take a photograph and can't count the plants within that marked monitoring area every year. And uh, obviously with seasonal conditions, you know, one year you'd have good rain and um, and a huge amount of plants and, and uh, you know, the following year you might have very little rain and there'd be a bit of residue and the following year might be average and there wouldn't be a lot. So it, it, it variated, uh, the variation was pretty wild from season to season, but you're looking at the long-term trends. And what we do now with, obviously, the uh, Windermurra station, since we bought that and the monitoring sites that have gone in there, we only monitor 30% of our monitoring sites each year. So each monitoring site should be done within three years. So we're just doing a third every year and changing basically every year which third we do. And um, I think that that... It will still give you a, um, a longer-term trend, but it will take out the, the seasonal spikes year to, from year to year. 
Um, obviously, a little bit less data by doing them every third or you know every third year, but I think that will still give us enough information to work out the long term trend of the country. And it's interesting that monitoring it can be useful. Well, it's it's always useful, but it can go uh, for you or against you. Even you know we've had country that's been totally destocked now since the sheep days. So we've you know um, two thousand and eight. So what's that? Uh, 14 years, 15 years um, since we destocked and noticing absolutely minimal um, improvement. And some areas that have had livestock on them are actually improved quicker with the mouths and hooves than areas that are completely destocked. And I mean, that, that was something that is possibly well known throughout the industry. But just to prove it to yourself, that destocking country is not necessarily the, the quickest way to regenerate it. It will come back, but actually having animals in the landscape is anywhere we've had animals in the landscape has actually increased the, um, you know, the, the, the quality of the, um, the monitoring sites. So yeah, I guess that's, um, that's something that's a bit interesting that, that we've we've found out. But you still need to manage those numbers, and anywhere where there's um, higher numbers of livestock, you just need to be very very careful in this part of the world because it is such a fragile fragile environment that overstocking can damage country very quickly. Talk to me about your feral pest burden. Um, we're really pretty limit, limited with um, you know feral pests in as much as that um, we don't have or very limited donkeys, um, odd ones, very limited camels, um, odd ones, um, very limited brumbies. Uh, there's there's three or four stallions still on Windermurrah that they were obviously let go by and, and bred up and, and then, yeah, they're, they're the only remaining ones at the minute. Um, wild dogs are the, the obviously the... Um, the burden, the greatest burden at the minute, and because we're running a cattle enterprise, uh, if you keep your dog numbers pretty low, which we're baiting and trapping and have a have a dogger working on the place, so you know at the minute I would say you know if we, we'd be lucky to have half a dozen dogs over the whole property, so you really say nil impact um, with the small stock. Obviously, that's not the case. You can't afford to have any any wild dogs, but. You know, someone, a wise man, some much wiser than myself, said to me one day that, you know, odd dogs won't impact on cattle. Um, you get dogs moving in, say, threes to fives, you'll notice calf losses. And if you get dogs moving in tens and fifteens, you'll notice, you know, wieners and growing cattle losses. So if you can keep your dog numbers just down to an odd dog here and there, really the impact on, on your cattle production system would be minimal. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but, you know, it sounded like pretty good uh, rates to me. And, and you know, you, on my observations, I would say that that's pretty much on the money. And it hasn't always been that. That's not always been the case, though, has it? There was a significant dog burden at one time or, or uh, there was going to be. Um, absolutely, and and no, we we went through a phase where when we had small stock in the region, and we destocked before we lost well any significant damage to our sheep flock. But uh, we destocked in two thousand and eight, knowing that the dog onslaught was coming. And um, you know, really, it's hard to know at the peak when there was still small stock around and the dogs moved in 
there was small stock around the area and we still had goats and, uh, you know, we could have had 50, 80 dogs, who knows, it's it's largely an unknown. But when you see, for every dog you see, they say there's 10 you don't. And, um, you know, we were regularly seeing dogs. You know, you do a mill run and you might see two dogs, maybe three dogs um, doing a mill run. So, you know, and that's only a mill run might only be a third or a quarter of the of the property and uh that was a regular occurrence not not anymore um you know we've we've ramped up a hell of a lot in the region and obviously with the completion of the um Murchison regional vermin cell now that will hopefully um stop the dogs or at least slow them down from coming in then we've got half a chance so um you know over the over the years when we got out of sheep uh, we went through a big wave of dogs came in and over probably a three to five year period um, we were overrun and you know everyone around us threw their hands in the air and really didn't know what to do and and as we did we destocked and we stayed destocked for a significant period of time relying on um, off property income to make the ends join up and uh, it wasn't until uh, 2013 where we sort of started to think about getting into cattle. You mentioned you had a dogger and you bait. When you're, how do you decide where to focus your efforts on? Like, are you just uh, dropping baits evenly across the whole property, and does the dogger just kind of cover everywhere, or how do you pick what areas to concentrate on? Uh, you concentrate on where the, the most obvious activity is, but uh, you, you do need. You might see a dog track in an area, and dogs work a a loop or a, or a circuit or a or a lead, dogs not always just passing through from north to south or east to west. You know, they they live in an area and, and they generally work a, a pad and their circuit might be 14 days, it might be 40 days, it might be four days. So you see dog tracks here. It doesn't mean that that dog's going to be back in the next day or the next two days. It might be two weeks before the dog comes back. So you've got to have a certain amount of traps in the ground all the time. And, um, and our doggers... Doing that, I mean, he just doesn't set traps willy-nilly. He'll, he'll wait until he's got a, a repeat offender as such. So you'll see a track in an area and he notes that down and then two weeks' time he might see that track or a track back in that same area. Well, that then justifies him putting a trap in. You know, sometimes there's, there's a bitch with a couple of pups in an area not moving too far and he'll set a trap if he sees, you know, um, younger dog tracks around an area, then he'll he'll set traps in that area. Generally, we try and bait. If there's any number of dogs, you would try and bait there first to try and take the, what dogs you can out with baits and then um, and then trap the dogs that are remaining that won't take baits. Um, older dogs tend to be a lot warier or a lot more wary of baits. Over a period of time, um, every bait that you lay in the environment becomes sublethal. So if I every bait, you know, I might put out 5,000 baits next week and um, in some of them laying out in the direct sunlight or, you know, we might get a thunderstorm with rain, um, the, the toxicity of those baits is reduced and, you know, some might be under a bit of a cliff or under a bush and the toxicity of that bait will remain for a lot longer. But every bait you lay in the environment, whether it's three weeks, three months, six months, 12 months, will become sublethal. And as dog dogs get older and they take a bait, um, and they get crook and they don't die, then they become bait shy. So, you know, there is older dogs out there that have been crook and not died um, that just won't pick up baits anymore. So your baits really are for your very young dogs and for your 
older, real old, sick dogs that are having trouble hunting and, you know, getting a bit old and arthritic and can't pull down a kangaroo anymore. They'll t- turn into scavengers to survive. So you'll find you'll kill your, your young dogs that are inexperienced and your very old dogs with baits, but a lot of dogs and probably the majority of dogs um, won't take baits anymore. So you just, you've um, got to be strategic and that's where the doggers become very important. Do you undertake any landscape regeneration practices or any interventions? Uh, we do a lot and um, over the years in all sorts of different things from um, you know, pulling back in gully heads and scrub packing in you know, water courses where you get gully heads forming. Uh, we did a lot of that you know, 25, 30 years ago, scrub packing and, uh, and filters, you know, putting netting and things across water courses to slow down the water flow in areas where you're starting to see, see gullies and, and um, erosion. In more recent years, um, under the guidance of a bloke by the name of Cole Stanton, who does um, a lot of hydrology stuff, mainly with bank work with machinery, um, he spent some time here with us, and, and I believe he's an absolute genius. You know what he showed us about installing banks and, and diverting water flow and slowing it down and making it go where you want to go, uh, getting water off your roads and historically. Um, there wouldn't be a station anywhere in Australia that doesn't have a road that's turned into a creek. I mean, that's just everywhere. Someone has got one of those roads that was put in wrong and graded, you know, below the surface level and it's now washed out to bedrock. And installing what we call woe boys on those roads to get the um, the water off the road and running back into the um, natural water course in the environment to help it spread out and soak in. That's that's um, been a major focus for us in the last 10 years. But also in installing bigger banks across um, larger water courses where there's gully heads and gullying starting to occur, um, check banks and things like that. It's um, And Cole Stanton was absolutely brilliant in uh, in what he showed us. And, and there's been a number of guys over the years. I mean, I've got to mention uh, Hugh Pringle too, who started the uh, EMU project, which is Ecosystem Management Understanding, I think EMU stands for. And, um, you know, he, he was very, very good in what he taught us about, you know, restoring and looking after our country and, and also setting up monitoring sites And that in the early days when we first started with our monitoring and, our, and with our scrub packing and that sort of stuff. So... Um, it, yes, it's been an ongoing thing over a lot of years and, I mean, I could spend hours talking about it, but um, predominantly now uh, scrub packing, woe boys and check banks are our main focus. Again, I'll, I'll ask, how do you decide what areas to prioritise when you're putting in works? Well, you, you've got, and, and I know other you know, properties everywhere have got big issues and big areas of erosion. Unless you've got a lot of time and a lot of money and are prepared to burn a lot of diesel, don't start in the big worst areas. Start at the edges and work in. And and we the way we look at it is that um, our more productive landscapes are the ones that we focus on. So areas that um, there's either a quick fix, like something small you can do, uh, our roads have certainly been a focus of recent too um, because your road maintenance costs, if you get way boys in on your roads and you stop that annual erosion every time you get a thunderstorm or a heavier rain, 
you know, washing your road out and having to go back and grade it, there's significant cost savings, um, you know, by installing the way boys on your roads and stopping that uh, annual need for huge and heavy maintenance. So um, that's been a focus. But don't pull on big things too quick. Work out what your strategy is going to be and work out what the best way, what best bang for your buck is. So your higher productivity country, um, work on that. If there's a quick fix um, that you can slip out in a couple of hours with a loader and and do something that's starting, that's just developing and, and, and rectify that and leave those bigger projects um, to when you've got a bit of time or a bit of spare money because sometimes, you know, you can spend easily a week or 10 days on a big area. You can burn 3,000 litres of diesel before you even blink. And today, at, I think in Mount Magnet, we're paying closer to $1.90, $1.80-something for fuel. So um, you just got to be be aware. If you've got money and fuel to burn then and time, well, go for it, but be strategic. All right. Well, that covers off on the country section. Our next one is infrastructure. So let's start off with your fences. You mentioned before you've got most of your boundary fencing done but obviously the transition from sheep to cattle required a lot of infrastructure changeover. And so where you may have had internal fences for sheep at some point, the cattle, it just you haven't had enough time yet, I suppose. No, well, we've been focusing on the boundaries um, to date. We have done some internal fencing, but predominantly um, boundary fencing. Now, electric fencing in this part of the world I wouldn't say it's not practical, but because we have such large lengths and areas of, of fence and in one emu can, you know, if you've got these days with energisers, you can do 20, 40, 50 k's off one energizer, and it only needs one emu to get his leg twitched up in the fence and drop out huge sections of fence. Now, I know once animals are trained to electric fences, they tend not to put pressure on them, but um, our biggest problem with electric fencing, and we do have some, uh, is that the, the dropouts from kangaroos, emus, tree branches, taking out large sections of, of fence. And, um, you know, because we've got no mobile coverage here, you can't have a little fault sends you a message on your mobile phone to say your fence is out. Um, it's either got to be done by satellite or or physically going out and driving the full length of the fence to make sure that, you know, there's there's no um, nothing causing that fence to be tripped out. But we predominantly, um, because all our fences were plain wire fences, if we can reuse the plain wires, and a lot of them were four and five plain wire fences, where that's high tensile plain wire and we can reuse the wire, we put that back in with a barb on top, so you either have four or five plain wires with a barb on top, um, purely because of the economics of just basically all you're providing is the, you know, the strainers and struts and the posts and one barb. So you, it's, a, it's a cost-saving thing. Um, preference is three or four barbs um, if you're to do a boundary in a new area where you have no fence or the no fence has uh, or the old fence has no value you know it's all black wire that's broken or brittle or whatever um, you know on a boundary you'd probably be looking at three or four barbs um, some places we can do barb plane barb plane if you want a bit of cost saving and your cattle are reasonably quiet um, running two barbs and two planes intermixed with a barb on top, obviously, is a good option. Um, 
Yeah, a lot of times because we were upgrading our sheep fences, um, you've got a brand new steel fence that's only four or five eyes and not high enough. And to um, to get that fence up to um, cattle height, you know, you really need to replace all the posts and uh, and then run a barb on top if you reuse the wire. But what we've done is um, we've got poly droppers. They're big square hollow poly droppers and they actually fit over the top of star pickets. So um, you can actually push, either drop all your wires off and push, you know, 1.2 metre poly dropper over the top of your star picket and then just put your wires back on with a barb on top. And um, that saves the uh, the need for replacing all the posts. The cost is about uh, less than 20% for a, um, a poly dropper as compared to a, um, you know, 1650 star picket. So um, that's an option for where you're... Um, you know, you're transitioning from a sheep fence to a cattle fence. Otherwise, if you want to be a bit conservative, you can cut those poly droppers in half and unclip your top wire, shove the um, your top plane wire, shove your poly dropper over the post down so it sits on the second plane wire down and then put your top wire back on and then a barb on on top and that's a bit more of a saving again and that works works reasonably well as you know as well. So that's for converting sheep fences into cattle fences. Can you just talk me through a little bit the, the about the decision to have the electric fences and why you use them and, and where you do, but also just why? Because I don't see them. Well, I think I've seen them on two places. I know I know they're on a few, but I've only seen them twice before. So I'm just wondering, like, what what's the advantage and why you do it? Um, the main reason we use electric is for training purposes and and for um, holding paddocks and holding yards. So higher pressure areas, but certainly uh, we when we wean, um, we do what we call heifer training. So all our return heifers that are going to go back out spend time on electric, and they learn to be fence respecting. So that's it's more about teaching them to keep off the fences, so they spend time in those electric compounds and the electric holding paddocks um, to actually teach them to be fence respecting, and it it works really well. And also because we've now got the um, the block down at Jinjin, uh, when you're shifting cattle and growing cattle like cows, cull cows down to the Jinjin block, uh, you really don't want them putting too much pressure on fences and getting out because um, you don't make very good friends with your neighbours when you end up with all on the roads cattle, you know, running up and down the bitumen roads down there. So we really need to, um, anything that goes down to the farm or the finishing block down at Jinjin will be, put through the electric compound and, and trained to keep off every bit fence respecting before they go. What can you tell me about your waters? Is there any permanent water on Chala? No. Uh, there's there's a couple of places that if you know where to dig in soaks, um, even in the middle of summer, you can dig down and, and get a sip of water that will keep you alive, but nothing that will sustain a number of stock. So we have no permanent waters at all. What um, We have very limited um, dams, like although we're putting in more dams, but because of our rainfall is so unreliable, you know, you might go five years without a suitable rainfall event that would replenish your dams. So the majority of our water is underground water, underground aquifers, ranging from probably 10 feet to 150 feet. Um, so not too bad, not not real deep. And uh, although 150 foot is deep enough, but um, 
you know, most of our water's in that mid-range between 60 and 80 feet, sort of 60 to 100 feet, most of our water's in that, and reasonably good quality water. We um, historically have been all windmills, and um, it's really now got to the stage where we're probably half and half, so any new watering points going in are all solar. Um, if I need to replace a windmill or a windmill head flies off or is worn out, then it'll be replaced with a solar, so... Um, yeah, we're probably at this stage about 50-50 windmills to solar. When you're looking to, especially the transition from sheep to cattle infrastructure, I guess it's a bit of a clean slate somewhat. Um, what are you looking for when like putting in tanks and troughs and, and even just the positions of waters with any new waters that you've put in? Yeah, well, historically the waters were um, positioned if you're putting in a new watering point on a fence line or, you know, so you can water two paddocks with one water or close to a road because it's easily accessible. And um, latter years, with new watering points, they've been more aligned with land systems and, and, you know, you consider the environment where before in the past it was about what was convenient for management and best utilisation where now there's a much greater emphasis put on the environment when you install new watering points. In saying that, this part of the world, there's not water everywhere. So in all honesty, sometimes you've got to put the water where you can find that underground stream or that underground aquifer. So they're not always going to be in the in the best environmental position. So, I mean, that is a good consideration, but it doesn't always work. So um, a new watering point these days is a... Um, for us, because we're only running small numbers on each waters and, and preferably, you know, less than 100 head on a, on a watering point. Um, although at the moment I've got some that have got more than 100 head on them and they're not keeping up and I'm having to cart water. But normally you would look at, um, you know, a 30-odd thousand litre um, poly tank and we have in the past used the poly tub troughs, which I'm not a fan of after installing six or eight of these, um, we've gone away for them and we're now using the um, the longer concrete troughs that are about half a metre deep, maybe a bit more, say 700 deep, 700 wide and three metres long and um, quite easy to install. Obviously, you can't bounce them around like you do with the poly tub troughs and, you know, you can't just grab one and pull it off the back of the truck and install it. It requires a high ab or a, um, or a loader or something to, to lift them into position, but... Um, they really don't need any stabilising once they're on the ground in position. They're weighing in excess of half a tonne and um, pretty robust. So, yeah, all our new troughs going in now are the, the longer concrete troughs, um, the uh, rectangle-shaped ones, um, polytanks and solar pumps. What was it about the tub troughs that you didn't like and that made you like move away from them? There's a couple of things... And the ones we were using were poorly designed with the plug and to clean them out, the plug didn't allow the trough to be completely emptied. Um, there was always about two inches or 50 mil of water in the bottom and obviously that's where most of your sediment and, and crap in the bottom of the trough sitting is in the bottom and when you cleaned it, uh, they were really difficult to get clean and um, that was an, a, a, a largely just an annoyance but the strength of the polytroph, if you get a cow gets pushed into one, ends up flopping in there, we had them split and, um, yeah, they were quite easily damaged. They weren't as robust as we'd hoped 
And not only that, but you need to either build a frame around them to protect them and support them from that. You also need to build a frame around them to stop them being moved. Even when they're full, not a problem, but if you, um, you know, if it happened to get empty or you had a trough line blocked or something and the trough got empty, um, then they cattle pushing them, they used to push them around all over the place and rip the pipes out and all sorts of things. So they, they just weren't robust enough and they were absolute pricks of things to get empty. Again, with the transition from uh, sheep to cattle, you also had the opportunity to from a start from a clean slate with your yards. What were you looking for when building cattle yards and where did you draw your inspiration from? Yeah, that's a good point. We we um, we didn't build yards straight up. We we started with portables and um, and mucked around with portable panels just to see what worked and what didn't work. Uh, I actually looked at a number of yards on different cattle properties, and having worked on you know with the aerial mustering days, uh, we were mustering cattle as well as small stock. So having worked in a diff- few different sets of yards. Um, we were looking for stress-free stock handling, so the the yard design had to be based around that stress-free, um, slow, you know, low intervention um, stock handling sort of yards. And uh, I spent probably the first twelve or eighteen months looking at all different de- designs, um, a few different practical um, setups. Looked at you know, several books, um, Condinen Group. Uh, Yards and Yakker, I think, is the name of the book um, that they put out, and um, and got some ideas from them. And I guess then built a set of yards that even to this very day I'm ninety nine percent happy with um, from a whole combination of different things, but specifically with the stress free, low intervention, um, you know, minimal staff side of things. You know, you you can work cattle through our, we can work five hundred head which is in the scheme of things in most people not a not a big set of yards but we can work 500 through our um, yards at the house here quite comfortably um, three people not a problem at all even two people at a push um, one person can do it but it's not ideal uh, but yeah the, the yards are set up so they flow really well um, we've got either pound draft or drafting off the off the crush um, or you know, drafting gates in front of the crush, so uh, you can you can either pound draft or or gate draft up the um, up through the race. And um, no, the, there's a few little things that I changed. I swung a gate or two off the opposite side after we first built them. I put a couple of little man gates in for people, um, you know, ease of access for staff to move through the yards. Uh, we changed our crush from the original one we put in. Um, we've now got three crushes all the same and they are brilliant they are, I won't mention the name but they're, they're Queensland built crush and they are very very good crushes and we've now got three of them all the same and since then um, every yard that we've built um, you know it's, it's it's sometimes it's hard because there's the bit there and you don't want to destroy everything and start from scratch but there were cattle yards around the place and at Windermurrah Homestead we sort of kept part of the cattle yards and built onto those yards which it's not ideal, but we've ended up with a, a reasonably good working yard there now. And um, in the future, we're building um, total grazing management yards at all the watering points, and that is the plan, so that uh, if we need to react quickly to seasonal conditions or any other instance where you need to 
um, do something with your animals then with the total grazing management yards, then um, we can be very uh, responsive and react quickly and either shift cattle to different areas or process cattle or wean, you know, pull pull young cattle off or, or marking or whatever. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot better. But at, at the moment, that is our, our aim is to get um, working yards on, on every watering point. I was just going to ask you about that because I know you do undertake uh, an annual muster of the cattle, which, you know, you have a crew to do, but you also do have trap yards. So can you just, just reiterate why you have both trap, why you have trap yards, even though each year you muster the cattle? Yeah, well, mustering takes a lot of organisation, especially in this environment, at the present environment with staff shortages all over the place, trying to organise a crew and put a crew together. For mustering, you know, we look at a crew of about 10 and, um, you know, you've got to organise aircraft, you've got to organise trucks, you've got to organise staff. Um, we lock in our date, our start mustering date. It might vary a day or two, but, you know, we lock that in uh, generally around Christmas for a, for a, you know, mid to late April mustering start. So you're sort of looking three months in advance um, and you'll start locking in crew and... Um, you know, we, we have repeat offenders that keep coming back year on year on year, but there's always, you know, you need a few young fellas and jackaroos and things coming through and putting a crew together takes three months to, to organise to get um, enough staff sorted for, for mustering. And in this environment, it's, 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 it's worse, it's longer, and it's you're not always going to end up with as many as you want. And right now we, we've conceded to the fact that we're probably going to go into this year a couple short on what we would prefer, but anyway... It is what it is and we'll make it happen, but the, the length of time that it requires to organise can often be, um, you know, you need to to respond quicker. If there's been no winter rain and you're coming into summer and it's Christmas time or even December and you've literally had no rain since you returned your cattle in, you know, May, June last, the, the, the you know, last muster, um, you might say, well, there's a couple of areas that things aren't looking too flash and we'll just, um, we'll, we'll process those cattle or we'll destock those areas. And, and instead of having to try and, you know, on short notice, put a crew together to muster, you can just shut your trap yards off. And in two days, you can have a, a whole area that's now destocked or, or you've taken, you know, you've taken all your calves off and weaned or, um, you know, you've processed cattle and, and sold you know, half, you know, cull cows or, or even just pulled off your sale cattle and, and got them out of the area, you know, two or three months prior to what you would have planned to in a mustering scenario. So it's about trap yards make it a lot quicker to respond and particularly to seasonal conditions. Are you using any technology or new innovations on Chala or have you got plans or and things that you're interested in pursuing in the future? Yeah, absolutely. We, we've been... um using satellite water monitoring system now for probably eight years. Um, certainly since we first went back into cattle, we started using, um, because we had no mobile coverage, it's all satellite, which is quite expensive. The units themselves aren't that much more expensive, but the data costs are quite significant. Um, but we've got uh, water monitors on just about all all our major high-pressure watering points, but not quite all of them yet. It's quite an expensive system to roll out. But, um, you know, year on year, we, we put a, a few more in every year and uh, we've we've got probably, um, I'd say, 75% now of all our waters with water monitors on them. 
and or tank level monitors, and um, I can tell, you know, it's, it's saved us a lot in time and money in fuel, you know, particularly when um, you know summertime we were doing mill runs every four days. So literally in summer, that's all you do is mill runs. So you um, we sort of have four different mill runs that we do, and um, you go and do one and. You know, if you've got to come back in the afternoon and fix a windmill or solar pump or something, and then the next day you go and do another one, and then the next day you do another one, and then four days from when you did your first one, you're back doing the first one again, and that's pretty much all we did. And, you know, burning tens of thousands of dollars worth of fuel in the process every summer. Um, unfortunately, the tank monitors can't clean troughs, although maybe there'll be technology out there that can, but... Um, You've still got to do them every now and again, and it, you know you need to go around and check to make sure there's no dead animals, um, you know, close to your trough or close to your watering point, or you know that your troughs are clean. There's no dead birds in the tank if you've got open top tanks. Whatever, you still need to go around periodically. But you know, from every four days, we've pushed that out to basically every ten or every fourteen days, depending on how much pressure there is on the watering points. Um, so yeah, we, we've basically seventy five percent reduction in in fuel costs. Um, the other technology that we've been looking into is uh, satellite tracking ear tags. Um, we believe that uh, for aerial mustering purposes, you know, you, you you start and sometimes you clean a huge area out before you even get onto the first cattle because you're probably doubtful that there's going to be any there, but you don't know that. And you now there could be a mob of 50 gone up there and you don't want to miss them. So you start right up on the top boundary and you start working your way south. Um, and sometimes you've done two or three hours before you actually get onto your first mob of cattle. But if you've got satellite tracking ear tags, you know sort of roughly where your cat cattle have been, you know, within the last hour or two. And you can just, you know, you, you might know that there's half of the paddock that there's nothing in and you just go and start and it's a lot easier. You can direct your ground crew to go, you know, straight in on a, on a road that's further south and, um, you know, not have to go right out around the boundary. Uh, the time saving alone in aircraft hours justifies having the trackable ear tags. But in the future, the trackable ear tags working in conjunction with, um, uh, virtual fencing is going to be an absolute game changer for this part of the world. And I believe virtual fencing um, will have a place and will be something that's um, very heavily utilised, especially through this region. But I think most pastoral regions in general, I think that will be an absolute game changer when virtual fencing is is up and running. Well, that covers off on infrastructure. So we'll move on to cattle now. Again, I know I keep saying this, but the transition from sheep to cattle gave you a clean slate with many things. When you... I know you had some cattle on Challa already, but obviously to build your numbers, you would have had to bring in cattle. What were you looking for when building a herd? And, you know, it's it's a rare opportunity to sort of start from scratch and not have to be dealing with a lot of, you know, generations and generations of someone else's choices and decisions. Yeah, it, in, a, in a perfect world, that'd be perfect, absolutely ideal. But realistically... Um, you know, we were buying cattle to get numbers on the ground and everyone's got to start somewhere and people tend not to sell their best cattle. People are selling cull cattle and at the time prices weren't, you know, exceptional like they are today but, you know, back then, you know, they were still reasonably high prices and um, and in all seriousness, 
what we were looking for was uh, four legs and a head. Um, we had to take what we could get. And we were a little bit choosy because we were chasing the, the Sandery-type, Droughtmaster-type cattle. Um, there was probably more Droughtmaster-type cattle than Sander cattle out there, but what we did find was that, um, you know, if we bought in heifers, um, as they grew, they grew horns and they grew characteristics that, um, you know, weren't necessarily ideal, but that's the reason why people sold them because they were trying to get rid of their horn or get rid of their colour or get, <laughs> you know, and we were buying someone else's crap to put it not so politely, but, um, you have to start somewhere and, uh, there was not a lot out there and we bought what we could that we thought was of a reasonable quality with what little money we had at the time because obviously we'd been out of production for a long time. We had a little bit of money quarantined from the sale of the sheep when we got out of sheep um, but in, you know, in the preceding eight years from buying cattle the prices had gone up significantly and we we couldn't afford to be buying um, you know top quality. So we got in with what we could buy Um on Windermurra, when we first bought Windermurra, in the next 18 months, we took 130 scrub bulls off Windermurra, and that wasn't helping out of genetics anyway. Um, they were just coming from everywhere, and the more you took off, the more they seemed to appear. So, um, you know, we 30 or 40 in the first muster, and we thought, oh, gee, that's got rid of most of them. And then the following muster, we did another 30 or 40, and we thought, oh, we've got to get them close now, and... Then we did another 30 or 40 the next master. After that, we, um, cause we we're mustering every six months to, to actually try and get on top of things over there. Um, yeah, then the numbers. But even today, you, you'll not see a, a scrub bull for months and months and months. And then suddenly at a watering point, you'll see an eight year old scrub bull. Uh, who knows where he's come from? He's obviously a night drinker or hides or what? Who knows? But, um, we still get, Odd ones, um, every muster, there'll be an odd one that comes in and that's, that's, you know, we're really sort of on top of that now. But, um, we started purchasing Santa bulls and, um, what we did was we bought them at, um, uh, 12 months of age or less. Um, soon as you could sort of have a look and pick something that looks like it might be all right. And we put them into the, into the herd and they were not active. So they were no threat to the bigger bulls or the scrub bulls because when we did have quite a few scrub bulls out there, if you had bought nice soft stud bulls and put them in there, they would just got absolutely flogged. They would have been beaten to death and put off and you would not have got any calves out of those bulls anyway. So so we brought them in at, at less than 12 months or around 12 months of age and introduced them because they were just little young fellas and they were no threat to the scrub bulls. They learnt where home was. They learnt where the watering points were. They learnt what areas... Um, the cattle fed out into where the better feed was and then as time went by they um, you know they snuck the odd one in and got a calf or two here and there and and uh, and then as they became active they they knew where everything was and they didn't get put out and go and hang on fences and and perish and things like that so um, obviously they still had to compete with the scrub bulls and and over a period of time well like I said we've just about got them under control now we think so but we're still doing the same thing. We're buying in the young bulls at that 12 months of age and introducing them to the herd at that age um, so that they work out where home is and where the water is and that before they need to start competing with the older bulls. We learnt earlier on in this episode that you have a highly variable climate, you know, no guaranteed, well, not, not, not even, you wouldn't call it a wet season down here, but no 
no real guarantee of when rain is coming, if it's coming, and you also have limited internal fencing, I know both of those things would contribute and influence your mating strategy with your cattle. So those factors and, and I'm sure other ones, what, what can you tell me about the, the breeding and mate, I suppose mating strategy and just breeding program you've got? Um, yeah, that's, that's a real tricky one because in, in, an, in an ideal world, you would um, have all your bulls off and, um, and introduce them at a specific time knowing that, you know, you want to drop your calves on the, you know, just after the green date or whatever so that you'd have feed on the ground and, uh, you, like you say, it doesn't work in this way. We don't have a regular rainfall pattern, so it's hit and miss. You know, some years you get none, some years you get massive amounts of rain um, and over the, uh, you know, the period of three or five years it averages out. So you get a couple of average ones in between and there's nothing to go three years without with very little rain um, and that makes the breeding side of things very difficult. But we um, leave our bulls in all the time um, for the simple reason that you just can't predict when it's going to rain. Uh, the cows really won't cycle if they're in too poor a condition anyway. They, the cows won't cycle, so the bulls get very little calves um, when the cows are, are poor. Um, I know it's not the perfect strategy, but it's about the best we can we can get is by leaving them in all the time, and then just managing the the cattle um, relevant the cattle numbers the total numbers of cattle you got out there relevant to your feed on offer. So being proactive in as much as if if you haven't had any rain, um, then cut your numbers right back. And um, if your cows are in in poor condition. Um, you just all you got to do is either try and feed them, which we don't, or you, you either feed your cattle or you reduce numbers. And um, all you, or, you know, we, we work on the strategy that that less is best in dry times. And um, yeah, rather than start feeding, because if you start feeding, you just don't know when you're going to stop feeding, and it might not rain for three years, and you might end up feeding those cattle for three years, which is just not not um, financially sustainable. So cut your numbers back. Um, be proactive. If, if it hasn't rained, don't say, well, no, nah, we're going to carry on because it is going to rain this Christmas or this summer or we're going to get a cyclone or whatever. You can't just, you can't work, you base any management around, um, hoping that it is rain. You work out what feed you got on the ground and you work out how many cattle you can carry through for the next 12 months on that feed until you muster next time. And if it doesn't rain between now and when you muster next time or your next muster, you're going to have to make that decision and it's going to be a pretty hard decision on how many you carry through for the following 12 months based on what feed you've got on the ground. What sort of access do you have to veterinary services with regards to preg testing and spaying? Like, is that feasible out here? It's it's feasible, but it's 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 very expensive because access to vets here, um, either Geraldton-based or... Even Kalgoorlie, there's very limited um, vets, but um, it is doable. Um, I do know places around the area or the region not close by that do spay um, and do preg test. It's something that, that we're definitely looking into. You know, we, we've had vets out here doing tail blood samples for um, phosphorus so that we can get the appropriate amount of phosphorus into the loose mix licks and that because... Um, WA is, is known as being phosphorus deficient. As it turned out, we're actually not that bad through here, um, but we didn't know that, and we've done dung samples and soil samples and blood samples and all sorts of things to establish, you know, what, what we need. 
the composition of our loose mix licks to be um, to best you know get best benefit. Um, but vets are a few and far between out here, and you know to travel alone. And because there's not many places out here that are utilising veterinary services for cattle, um, it's not like two or three stations can get together and utilise the same vet because, you know, sometimes you're the only one that wants a vet, so you're paying the full travel cost. And quite often they're coming out of Perth or, or further north, even Carrara and Broome. So, um, yeah, it's it's a, a huge travel cost. I mean, the Geraldton vets, there is vets in Geraldton that do do this sort of stuff, but it's not really a, um, you know, a big part of, of their job. You also just mentioned before um, something about phosphorus. What is the nutritional requirements out here like are you doing a, a dry season lick or i suppose also coming back to with what the cattle are grazing yeah how does that are there any deficiencies out here i know you said phosphorus isn't really one of them no truth be known we're probably one of the well, fairly lucky in as much that the trace elements are and depending on what they're eating uh, are quite abundant in in this part of the world um obviously the urea is a big part um to get the digestive tract up and running for dry feed consumption. And really the most benefit we get out of our loose mix licks is, is uh, you know, the probably start at 15% and work up to a 30% urea and that really activates the gut microbes to, um, to make the best use of your dry feed. And that's what our licks are based around. Um, some areas where there's really good water, you can up your salt. In other areas where there's you know a higher salt content into your water, you reduce the salt. So there's there's different licks for different areas. Um, we do run uh, about a three percent phosphorus um, just to make up. Phosphorus is quite expensive to put into your licks, and um, you know if you if we didn't have to put any in at all, we'd probably go that way. But the fact is, you know, we we were running six percent, and we found out that we didn't need anywhere near that much. So um, We've halved that in the last lot of <coughs> lick we've had made up. But trace elements and things like that, there is a lot in the water. There's a lot of minerals in the water. There's a lot of minerals in the grounds around here. And, and um, although all licks have percentages of all sorts of different things in them, that's not really been a focus at all. It's, it's really about a little bit of phosphorus and mainly the urea. How do you go with your urea management so in other regions and around the country where there's that defined wet and dry period, you know, the urea is out in the dry. Well, also that's that's when it's required by cattle, but also you don't want it to be getting wet. Here, you don't know. You probably have dry standing feed. Well, and not just within, you know, say a dry season, but, you know, possibly all year round. When you don't know when your rain is coming, do you just have to, like, I guess, are you just constantly keeping an eye on weather forecasts? And then if it looks like you're going to get a big mob of rain, you go and try and cover up the urea or, or move the, you know, how do you manage that side of it? Right. Well, we, we run our licks all year round. And um, and the main reason is that, you know, as a good friend of mine says, we, we do drought and we do starvation really well because that's 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 our cycle down here. We understand what it what happens when it doesn't rain because it doesn't rain fairly regularly. So um, it's a... It's, uh, yeah, an ongoing thing with your, your management of your licks. But what we do is we get the 1,000-litre pods, the bulkies, 1,000-litre, uh, um, usually non-returnable chemical pods and wash them out really well and cut the side out of them. So just one side, leave them in their steel frames and the plastic pods, um, but cut one side out of them 
and we put our loose mix licks in there. The cattle put their head in. It takes a little while to train them, but we train them as heifers now in the yards. We put all sorts of lollies into them and make them poke their heads in there and molasses and that, and they get used to sticking their heads in from the side, and that protects it from the rain. So that's something that we we sort of found was, yeah, we, um, I wouldn't say we invented it, but we were certainly the first people that I ever saw start doing that. Um, other people probably have, and a lot of people have since, with, yeah, just using those thousand litre bulkies, cutting the side out, putting your lick in there, and then, then they're protected. You put the, um, the back of it to the northwest, which is where a prevailing rain comes from. I mean, thunderstorms can come from anywhere, but you put the opening to the southeast, and we have never ever lost a cattle through wet urea, or any cattle through wet urea. That is, I love, this is why I love doing this, this thing, because I've just learned something. I've seen, for phosphorus in the wet season, I've seen photos um, of you know, phosphorus in tubs and it kind of looks like I guess it's got like an umbrella sticking out of the top of it and yeah. they do that because they know that that's got to be out during the wet season. But I'd say, yeah, everywhere else more or less, people can be pretty confident when they put urea out. They know what time of year it's going to stay dry. But, yeah, like, like we said here, you really don't know when a storm might just roll through. That is a really cool idea. I'm very happy I've learned something. I mean, I've learned a lot today and in this episode, but I'm quite excited about that. So that covers off on the cattle side pretty well. So our last section is people. What what are the requirements for staff down in this part of the world and how do you go about managing them? Yeah, staff's a big one and um, in this current COVID environment, um, it's, it's massive and it really is and we, uh, in an, in utopia, ideal world, we'd have a full-time jackaroo on, um, basically 12 months of the year. We'd have, um, secondary staff come in as required for fencing, um, yard building. So you might get another one or two come in for, um, for yard building and fencing. And, um, obviously my wife and myself and my wife plays a big part in the, in the running of the business and the out and about on, you know, on property stuff as well. But um, and and then seasonal for mustering and um, tailing out and things like that. But you know we have a crew of about ten come in for mustering. Um, these days we've well with 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 what numbers we're running and that um, three weeks is the pressure. You're in, you're done, and you're out. And then the processing of cattle. Well, we process you know daily as we muster and mark calves and. You know, pull all our um, sale cattle and all our you know weaners and that off into um, into yards, and then after that is when after we finish the mustering, uh, we start working with our um, our sale cattle to the extent that if some of them have got to go down to the finishing block, um, they'll be worked through the electric fence and trained up and and fed and and you know conditioned to um, being able to adapt when they go straight down there because they will go down in May sometime and quite often the the green pick hasn't come on in May you know, down at Jinjin. So um they'll be on hay when they first go down and then transition onto a, a natural pasture as the um feed comes on down there. So there's a bit of work with carting them down and, and we do we got a B train so we cart our own cattle to a certain extent to the farm and around the property but um the all the sale cattle will contractors come in as we you know when we finish mustering and the sale cattle will go out in um, triple road trains. That's the most economical way to to transport out of this part or quads even these days. But um, 
Yeah, the the um, the, the weaners, the heifers, the returning uh, replacement heifers, they'll spend an additional week in the yards and um, they'll be trained onto the electric um, compound and holding paddock fences. Uh, they'll be worked with horses. Um, we work with the low-stress stock handling techniques through the yards. Basically, um, over a period of three or four days in the yard, we'll be able to open up the race, open all the gates around, open through the crush, and um, and one person from the back of, say, a mob of 200 wieners, they will flow around through the yard and just walk quietly through the crush and someone might be changing the gate on the front of the crush um, or stopping them periodically, you know, every third or fourth one, you close the front of the crush or close the back of the crush, stop, you know, catch one, and they'll just calmly all walk through and that's that's where we want the um, the replacement heifers to be. After um, after a week in the yards here, um, we start carting them out to the areas where we're going to release them and uh, they'll do another week of, um, of you know, tailing out in those areas. So we put them onto a, you know, either build a yard out of portables or if there's existing yards there, um, we'll put them onto the water, let them out, tail them around for possibly up to five hours on the feed, show them, you know, areas close by where, where we're sort of operating from where there's reasonable feed and, um, and then yard them, bring them back onto water, give them a drink and, um, and then shut them up for the night on hay, but they're not on water. So that next morning when we let them out again, we put them onto the water, give them a drink, tail them out for you know five or six hours, re-yard them back onto the water, give them a drink, then back into a yard with hay. And that actually um, teaches them where the water is so they actually get a bit thirsty and they, they want to come in when they come back in from tailing out. <coughs> um, normally they, they all have a drink and, um, and after a week of that. And that's all done predominantly with horses. Um, we have volunteers and Deb... Uh, my wife's obviously a um, very experienced horsewoman and she has a few friends with horses come over and uh, that, that works really well for, for settling in the um, the replacement heifers into areas. And really that's that's about the extent of it with what we do. Tell me about how when you've got you know a big number of people on the station, how you manage the, the culture side of things. Yeah, well, predominantly... Um, there's minimal staff here as, um, you know, like I said, one full-time jackaroo in, in a perfect world at the moment. I haven't got anyone, but we're looking to um, replace one now. But uh, over mustering when there's a crew and possibly up to 15, um, usually around about 10 plus a cook, um, you know, plus a few extra hangers-on and might be a few friends that come up and... and um, yeah, we, we have what we call the uh, Chala Mustering NDP and that doesn't stand for Nuclear Disarmament Party, that stands for No Dickhead Policy. So the Chala Mustering NDP is a, is something that we developed here and it's it's not a, um, a standalone safety management system but it is a, uh, a something that we've developed to enhance our existing safety management procedures and what it's designed to do is to make people think about what they're going to do before they do it so don't do dumb stuff because that's how you people get hurt stop and have a think about what you're going to do before you jump in and do it and um, the uh, the process is that after a hard day's work we all 
sit down in the workshop and have a beer and um, or a wine or a soft drink or a glass of warm salty water, whatever your preference is, and and have a bit of a yarn and we, we sort of pull apart the day and what went wrong and what went right and um, everyone gets an opportunity to have their say and they have to have their say, whether it's nothing to say or whatever, but everyone has to um, has to contribute. And it might be something, um, and, and I know it's, you know, not a dobbing culture, but you, if you saw someone do something dumb, you have to raise it because it could develop, you know, they do it again and they get injured. Um, so it's, you know, people have to raise the issues about what they saw. And some of the senior members in the, um, in our crew, um, are very good and they, they might have a yarn to a young fella and say, you know, you probably shouldn't be in there with that scrub bull or you're turning your back on them or when you're closing this gate close it from the other side or stand behind the gate or whatever just little things that make a difference but the whole um the whole idea of it is to have a bit of fun as well as the serious side of it and it takes a bit of heat out of the day if there's been a bit of an altercation between a couple of staff or someone's um stuffed up pretty bad and they're feeling pretty bad about it it gets it out in the open and we all have a laugh and and uh it, tomorrow's another day, it's done, it's dusted, it's forgotten, and we move on. And um, what happens is that uh, you get points allocated. So if you've done something dumb, if you've fallen off your motorbike, it could be 20 points. If, um, you know, you had contact with an animal in the yards, like one's giving you a bit of a nudge over the fence where you get points for that, or there's a near miss with no contact, or, um, you know, if you rolled your buggy, you get certain points for 90 degrees of rotation so if you, you've gone over two or three times you might not come out of it too well but if you only flipped her on the side well you get might get 15 points and at the end of the day um you know whinging sooking cutting off the mob um swearing at the pilot or you know all sorts of things you can and there's a whole list of things you can be allocated points for at the end of the day all the points are tallied and whoever had the worst day uh they get awarded it's a little pink slip, a nighty, and you have to wear that the whole of the next day. That's uh, your punishment for getting the most points, and then the object is not to get any points, but whoever done the most dumb things for the day. Now, you don't have to wear it. Some people do. Some people wear it and flaunt it, but uh, you can wear it as a headband. You can wear it as a neckerchief. You can put it in your pocket. So it's it's got to be visible and it must be on the person. And if every, any of your crew members pull you up and go, "Nah, where's your, where's your, um, you know, your ninety, and uh, and it's not visible or it's not on you, it's an instant hundred points goes on to the next day. So um, it's a bit of fun, and it, it is a laugh. And and uh, yeah, there has been times that back in the camp at nine o'clock at night, uh, people have been uh, male members of our crew have been known to uh, flaunt the ninety with not much else on, but we're not going into that. But uh, it is. It makes it fun, and um, everyone after the first day or two, they work out what's going on. And, and uh, the minute you start protesting, someone says, "Oh, Billy, I saw you fall off your motorbike." And Billy goes, "No, no, but my handlebar didn't touch the ground." And you go, "Are you complaining? Or are you whinging? Or are you sucking? Because you get points for all those things." Oh, bugger off! You know, you stop being anyway, and you get another ten points added on. And sometimes it goes on for about five minutes, and they find out they've got about two hundred points racked up, and they're wearing the pink nighties. And next night, when Someone says, Billy, I saw you fall off your motorbike. Billy goes, yep, no worries. <laughs> and that's the end of the conversation. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it is a bit of fun and it, and it makes people, ultimately it's, it's designed to make people think about what they're doing and not to do dumb stuff. And uh, we find that um, it whittles out a few of the crew that 
aren't suited to be part of the crew and we have had people pull the pin um, after day two or three. And in all honesty, that's probably a good thing. If you don't fit in um, with our crew and, you know, you can't have a laugh at yourself, then um might be best that you're not here. It sounds like a good way to keep safety at the forefront of everyone's mind, but in a more fun and engaging way than kind of this, you know, um, dictatorship, you know, you know, you must do this and, you know, kind of in that way. And also to diffuse any tensions at the end of the day, whether, you know, you're frustrated at someone else for, like you said, cutting off the mob or, or doing something, or if you've done something and you're just feeling a bit silly about it because, like you said, everyone at some point probably will have something crazy. So you know, you're not alone in making a mistake. Mm. So, no, it, it's, um, it's also an opportunity for the staff to, um, have a crack at the boss and don't worry that, that, uh, the boss gets toweled up pretty bad in tribal council. Um, there have been times when, uh, I've been allocated in excess of 400 points for the day, um, simply for, uh, yeah, maybe getting a boggy bug, a buggy bogged or, uh, nose diving into a creek and not being able to get out or not that, um, yeah, don't worry. The, uh, the boss, um, he gets, uh, certainly loaded up with points sometimes and, and, and usually in the first day or two, the, the crew takes great enjoyment until they find out that the boss is actually flying the aeroplane. And uh, when there's this really rocky, rough, rugged hill that needs to be, uh, you know, a buggy needs to get up on the top of just because the uh, pilot thinks that's where they should be, irrespective of whether there's any cattle there, sometimes the um, the crew learn that it's not best to pay out on the boss too much. But, yeah, don't worry, I, I get um, I get loaded up sometimes. Well, that that finishes up our people section. So I've just got four questions to ask you before I let you go. First one is, what is the biggest challenge that you face in your business? Um, two, the biggest thing is is um, lack of rainfall, but that dictates terms of of how many cattle you run, what your mar- you know, profit margins are, because you might only be running twenty five percent of what you'd like to be running. So. So rainfall, but the biggest thing is, is being a market taker and, and a price taker and being at the beck and call of the markets. And sometimes, you know, you'd like to be mustering now because the price is really, really good. And three months time, by time we get to the stage, um, where we actually can muster, you know, the, the, the markets might be significantly lower and, um, having no control over, you know, the, I know there's forward selling now and all sorts of things that, uh, and contracts and, all sorts of things that are that are gaining, but at the end of the day, we're still price takers. If you could be boss for a day and supersede government, industry bodies, you know, anyone out there that runs the rules and regulations, what's something that you would bring into the industry? Freehold for pastoral land. I like that answer. And perhaps this may, may uh, result in the same answer. On that same level, if you were the boss, what is something that you would get booted out, let go, or left behind? Um, right now, and and even though safety is a um, is a huge thing, and and it's something that we need to be conscious of, and more conscious as every day goes by. But these um, industrial manslaughter laws have got to go. Can you tell us a little bit? I'm actually not aware exactly of what those are. Well, I know they exist, but what the current impacts are as they are and how um, that impacts the pastoral industry? The, the, the impact is largely unknown until there's a test case in the courts. 
and that's the fear is that, you know, if someone out on a motorbike gets taken out by a scrub bull or, you know, um, something happens that is just purely out of your control um, and and someone, you know, God forbid is, is killed, then basically you lose your business, you lose everything and, you know, um, not that I'd wish that, you know, that, that one of our employees, you know, ever ends up in that situation. But the penalties for things that are largely out of our control um, are, are way too large and really we won't know until it's tested in court. You know, the, the government's saying, oh, but if, you know, you had no control over it, it won't, uh, you know, you, you won't be penalised for it. But ultimately that's not the way the legislation is written and those industrial manslaughter laws are... Traconian, that's about the only way you could put it. Yeah, the devil is always in the detail or sometimes the lack thereof. So sounds like that's definitely something to watch. The last question I have for you is what is something that is non-negotiable for you, whether it be in your personal life or business? Um, I probably should have thought about that a bit more, but um, looking after your landscape, you know, non-negotiable is as a as a um, an employee or someone that I employ. There's a couple of things: is, is you don't ever flog anyone's gear. If you want to go out in your own car and do donuts or your motorbike and flog it down the road, whatever. But you never ever flog anyone else's gear, as whether it be mustering buggies or motorbikes or trucks or loaders or whatever. It doesn't matter. That is absolute. You know, that's a sackable offence. But Running over a salt bush, if you're turning around in a paddock and there's a big flat and you run over a salt bush or run over a little shrub or a little cider plant that's trying to grow when, you know, you should take every move or measure possible to avoid damage to the environment and that is not negotiable.